Welcome to Edge of the Election, Edge of the Crowds Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jackie, and tonight, as always, I'm joined by Rory and Joel. So how are the two of you this evening? Uh, yeah, feeling a little bit better than the last couple of weeks. Um, the flu's finally gone and, and ready to kick off with the, you know, what's a little bit of a different, a few different topics this week. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm, I'm well, I'm well. That's all. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> well, is, well is better than bad, that's for sure. Um, we might just stick into it because, as Rory said, there are a few different topics, but we'll start with what has been the running theme of this podcast, and that is the federal election because the AAC has officially started to call seats. They've called quite a few of them. And, oh, what do you know? It's everything basically that got called on election night, plus those ones that we had to wait two or three weeks for. Yeah, um, everything's, it's all pretty much um, sewed up now. It's just the official stuff, you know, the AEC, uh, getting the, the right people in the right rooms to make those calls. And and over the next few days, the Senate will be um, getting started to call as well. It looks like, um, you know, the ACT will be called tomorrow officially. Um, and, and that'll be, you know, Katie Gallagher and one in the, um, and David Pocock as well. So, uh, yeah, Z is out, no Liberal Party representation in the capital at all. I mean, I'm sad to see it confirmed for Suka after after it was so close for a little while there, but oh well, there's always, there's always next time. Yeah, and I mean, unfortunately, Pauline Hanson is very likely to get her seat. Um, would have been funny to see her gone and irrelevant for at least three years, but that's not quite the case this time around. Um, so six more years of Pauline for Australia, but... I mean, we're still seeing plenty of, like, quite talented young politicians come in on top of all of these independents that are supposedly not super interested in playing politics, but we'll see how that pans out now that they might have less tangible power than they were expecting to have. Yeah, uh, it's yeah always good to see new talent coming through and, yeah, those independents will be a, a little bit less uh, relevant, you know, with um, the Labor and, and Greens getting, you know, a majority in effectively both houses between them. So that's probably where we're gonna gonna end up on a lot of these votes once Parliament starts sitting um you know next month. I I, I reckon Labour will be willing to work with the Teals in some respects because I know there's that they probably don't want to work with the Greens too much or on everything. So we'll probably see them involved in in, in, in some deals, I reckon. Uh, so I think that there's still room for them to uh, to hold the balance of power and to and to use that. Um, but yeah, it looks like, you know, Labor's got their lower house majority, so looking pretty good for them. Yeah, well, the problem's always going to be the Senate for Labor. Um, I think it's that even if they combine with the Greens, they still need one more vote, which will predominantly come from either Jackie Lambie um, or David Pocock. But they still don't have a clear majority alongside all of these Greens members. So they are actually just going to have to pony up and form a non-traditional kind of coalition with the Greens for the next couple of years, which I'm sure they'll live it about. Um, <laughs> and I'm sure that there will be constant uh, bickering between the two parties. Yeah, no doubt. But, um, yeah, I think you're both right there. Obviously, the Greens and the Senate's um, going to be the issue, so they need to get those votes at least, which is where working with the Teals in the House uh, is going to become a little bit more difficult. You know, you kind of working to your left in one aspect and then to your right in another. So... 
um, yeah, not quite going to work. But on the, on the big stuff, you know, ICAC and uh, climate change, I think they'll probably get all that stuff passed pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, I think I think it, ICAC and climate change will be where where the teal step in uh, step in a lot. So yeah. But uh, the Prime Minister has been out of the country for most of the week. Uh, he was in Indonesia for a large part of it, although apparently was at the state of origin on Wednesday last week. Um, it's good to see that like Australia is repairing the diplomatic relations in the Pacific, especially with these major countries, because, I mean, Indonesia is a massive country right on our doorstep. Um, and we haven't exactly been treating... Indonesia, all the other uh, neighbouring nations in that region, particularly well for the past 10 years and even back when Labour was in power back then. Uh, yeah, we kind of use Indonesia as just like somewhere to ship off some prisoners and and kind of Australian, like send Australians on holiday to Bali and kind of uh, rip up their country and, and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it's um, good to see him out there. You know, he spent most of his prime ministership so far out of the country, it seems. You know, between Japan and now Indonesia, he's going on plenty of plane trips, that's for sure. But, you know, that's just part of the job. Uh, but, yeah, working with Indonesia is going to be important. You know, biggest country in the region, um, biggest majority Muslim country in the world. So, you know, these are all uh, all big things and, and good to build these relationships as well. Yeah, it, it's a bit nonsense that we haven't been taking Indonesia seriously uh, the past the past few years. Um, is they, they are... I would say that they're like the regional power, I would say, maybe sort of equal with, with Malaysia there. Um, and yeah, they are the, the Muslim majority power. And I think that's going to be interesting in terms of uh, the relationship with China, um, because Indonesia are currently maintaining a bit of a, um, a, a largely, like, they have a friendly relationship with China, but like the, the Uyghur issue is causing some tension. There's been a lot of protests recently. So I think if we are to uh, to take the China threat seriously, then Indonesia is someone we want on side, um, particularly in terms of uh, fighting against China's human rights abuses against Uyghurs and against their citizens more broadly. Yeah, and also just China encroaching on diplomatic relations in the region because I'm sure uh, Indonesia was not particularly happy about what was going on uh, in the Solomon Islands. <laughs> Um, it's like, because while it's close to us, it's also close to Indonesia and a lot of the other diplomatic threats have been closer to Indonesia. Indonesia is less of small fish than Australia is in China's eyes. Yeah, that's definitely true. I think, um, one we also have to look out for is Sri Lanka. Um, they're in quite a tough spot at the moment. Um, that country's on the verge of going bankrupt. Um, they're currently being propped up by some, uh, Russian oil money. So that's, uh, good for them, I guess. At least, there's, you know, stuff is um, staying together for the, a small period, but um, it'll probably be an area that China looks to influence over the next uh, few months, I would have thought. And that's, you know, it's in the Indian Ocean, but um, so is WA. So uh, one that we should be looking out for as well there. And I think that um, Albanese will be over there at some point in the next six months trying to, you know, rebuild that relationship as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely important but uh, closer to home, in particular closer to Rory, uh, the ACT is set to decriminalise personal amounts of all drugs. So not just marijuana, it's pretty much everything. Um, and, I mean, a lot of people have, like, been pushing for Australia to move to a Portugal model of um, 
regarding legality of uh, narcotics and other kinds of drugs. But, I mean, I don't think it surprises anyone that the ACT is the first of the states or territories to move on this. Uh, yeah, so a couple of years ago, the ACT decriminalised uh, marijuana for personal use. Um, you can grow plants in the backyard, all that kind of um, good stuff. You can't buy it and you can't buy seeds. So how are you meant to get those things? Um, that's still got to be done under the table. But, uh, yeah, it's a, a move forward and more into that Portugal model. Obviously, yeah, personal amounts, amounts for, you know, one person, one use, that kind of thing. There's no way you could be walking down the streets with, like, 20 ounces of ketamine. Um, that's not happening, but... Yeah, a small amount at a time, you should be okay. Um, police will just give you fines, they'll take it off of you, but um, yeah, you're not going to jail for it. And I think that's the main thing. Uh, yeah, of course, it's a shame about no 20 acid ketamine, but this is still a, still, still a good victory for if the ACT. Uh, shows what will happen if you have a Labor Greens coalition. Um, yeah, yeah, it's just really good common sense policy. Uh, should be doing this all over the country, everywhere across the world. Um, yeah, so yeah, let's, let's hop on it. And yeah, it's not looking too good for the rest of Australia in terms of drug decriminalisation, but it's good we have this little this little pocket in, in, uh, in the ACT. Yeah, I mean, anything the ACT does, the rest of the country is like at least five years slower to move on, it feels like. Um, we saw that with gay marriage where the ACT briefly was allowed to have gay marriage and then it was struck down by Abbott and his cronies. Um but ultimately, I think that the best thing about this is that it does also open pathways to actually help people that have drug addictions. Um, that's always been the problem with the criminalization of drugs is the fact that you punish people and you put them into a situation all the time where it's easier to get drugs than it is uh, outside of jails and prisons. So ultimately, I think ACT is doing a good thing. Hopefully it starts to incrementally come into the other states. Um, Victoria looks set to at least in part decriminalise marijuana a little bit more than just the medicinal use, but we still don't even really know how far away that is. Yeah, I think it'll it'll take a little bit of time. I think they'll at least um, want to get through that this election before they do that. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see what uh, the Labor Party federal labor party does here whether they want to you know strike this down like this happened with gay marriage before because of course uh, the act can't really make their own laws it's up to the, the federal government if they want to allow them to do it so uh yeah we can float this as much as we want and i would have thought labor would leave it alone and i think it's an interesting um stance if they do that um but whether they like pursue it at a federal level is going to be another thing um going forward but yeah victoria um we could be uh, down the same path in a few years in Victoria, I would have thought. Yeah, um, I'm not too hopeful about the Labor's prospects here. Um, I, I don't think they'll they'll commit to a to a drug decriminalisation position anytime soon, really. Um, but if, it, if the Greens maybe make it a bigger thing, they can use their discursive power a little bit, try to really put it put it in there, um, not legislatively, but just within the. The national conversation. Uh, but yeah, I don't think federal Labor will want to risk something like that. I, I'm not too hopeful about Victorian Labor either, just because the Andrews government has taken a pretty hardline stance against drugs in the past. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm not, I, I don't have great hopes there. I, look, it will happen eventually. I'm, I'm pretty confident that it will happen eventually. But like, well, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure about like a very, about a very swift timeline. 
No, I don't think the timeline's going to be swift at all. As I said, I think that everything is going to be about five years behind at a minimum because um, it's just how things work in this country. I think that the Greens do have the power to make this a bit more of a wedge issue, um, at least with the power that they hold in the Senate. But at the same time, federal labor can still play this of letting this get through and make it a like kind of a state's rights issue of being like we're not going to tell the act what to do because we can't tell new south wales what to do um and if they do that and they're consistent with that throughout the next three years it could look really good um at least as far as the act and the northern territory actually getting to be treated as they should um or they could be heavy-handed right from the outset outlaw this and then uh say that the next three laws that this labor greens government in the act is uh try to push through uh no go zones as well yeah i think um you know with david pocock being there as well he's pushed heavily for you know territory rights and i would have thought if they want to keep his vote in the senate uh they're going to have to allow the territory to do their own thing mostly so yeah i think this will get through it's just you know, timelines it'll probably be by the end of the year one would have thought just in time for a big christmas um and we might move to boris johnson surviving the vote of no confidence um i think that that wasn't surprising that he survived it we were talking like 60 30 or 66 33 numbers last week it was a lot closer than we were expecting that's for sure yeah uh 41 of his party voted against him and then you've got you know all the Labor Party and the SNP and stuff against him. So the majority of that parliament uh, doesn't want Boris Johnson as a prime minister, yet he's still there. So, yeah, I think he'll be gone uh, much sooner than later, it looks like, as um, that movement starting to grow a little bit. Uh, he's been described as a dead man walking. So, yeah, it's just a matter of time now before, before we have a new prime minister in the UK, I would have thought. Yeah, uh, interesting there. Uh, I'm not too sure who it will be. Um, I don't know. Do you guys have any, any guesses there? You know, none of them are really any good, though. I would have thought... So Rory Stewart ran against Boris Johnson for the leadership last time around. He's not currently in the parliament, but if they can kind of bring him in somehow, I think that's probably uh, the best way to go. It looks like he might run for London mayor, though, so I'm not too sure about that. But then, the, you know, Dominic Raab and that front bench is all there. So, you know, there, there's plenty of options. It's a, it's a very big party. I think also the fact that, like, we were saying Boris Johnson is useless prior, up until and post whenever Boris eventually ends up going. Um, so it's not like, oh, there's no real shining stars in this party. Boris is not a shining star within that party either. So it could, it's likely to come from the front bench. I don't know, he could make the right kinds of promises to people that are against him currently and change his ministry up a little bit. But, yeah, this COVID party scandal, which has been going on for 18 months now at least, um, is going to be the death of him and it's a pretty humiliating uh, political death. Yeah, it's certainly. Um, you know, once these kind of votes happen, no confidence votes, it's impossible to come back from them. Uh, we've seen it with, with Abbott and Turnbull and, you know, all these kind of things. So it's, yeah, I would have thought he, he has to go at some point. It's just a matter of, you know, whether he can do what like Malcolm Turnbull did to a degree and have his replacement be from that same kind of faction or if what is more of a left-wing faction of that Conservative Party kind of takes that uh, prime ministership. So, yeah, that, that's the only way to really to really analyse this at this point. But, yeah, whoever comes out on top, Jeremy Hunt, 
Um, yeah, it could be him. He's obviously done a pretty terrible job with health in the past, though. So, yeah, the, the issue is that there's been so many scandals and so many issues with the Conservative Party since they took over in 2010. There's not really anyone that's, you know, not tainted with that brush. So, yeah, I, I all I can see happening is someone takes over small amount of time they have an election and then we start again from there i think that's probably the only way to do this but we'll move to uh, more international news i've got a big segment on the united states tonight because there's been a lot happening i uh, will start with the primary elections that they've been having for the last month because we're getting up to in november sorry um, in November, they will be having another election, but not the presidential election. So the whole Congress gets wiped. A bunch of the governorships are up for grabs. And a third of the US Senate is also going to be re-elected. And we'll see some new faces, that's for sure. We'll also be having quite a few disastrous faces going. And we know that already because they've lost their primaries. Um So the first big one is probably that Gavin Newsom has won in California. Um, He was the, what was he, governor? Yes. Yeah. He's been governor for the past couple of years. Um, Not particularly popular, at least from the circles of LA and other California, like, creators that I follow. But apparently still popular enough to win his primary. Yeah, obviously, um, you know, California's, the most one of the most progressive states at least you know that whole west coast is is up there in terms of how progressive they are but um Newsom's kind of the best of a bad bunch I'd, I'd call it in terms of what the democrats offer um these days you know he's he's younger um has some good ideas obviously you can't win california without being relatively progressive at least so he's he's done some good stuff he's from san francisco um and yeah took over a few years ago possible 2024 candidate for president if you know joe biden doesn't run and they have an open primary all that kind of stuff but yeah um not really any surprises there he was running against one republican who's just you know not going to come close in california so yeah a pretty pretty easy win for him the one that i was kind of focused on was dr oz uh, in pennsylvania though um i'm sure we all remember the tv show dr oz he kind of you know spruiks weird stuff kind of came out of you know those people that were on the oprah show originally you know Dr. Phil and Dr. Oz and, and all that group that are now, you know, doing reality TV and kind of becoming influential with the politics. Um, he's kind of running as a, a right-wing Republican and, and he's uh, got through to that, to that final day in November. So, yeah, an interesting one there. Yeah, I um, from what I've seen from his Twitter, he is not running a particularly interesting campaign he's running on like weird like republican values like the boring kind of stuff rather than taking a leaf out of the trump playbook and going with the culture war and going with just the worst takes but at least entertaining takes that realistically could win him pennsylvania i actually think that with the current playbook that he's running it just won't generate enough interest to get people that would skew Republican to vote because, I mean, these midterm elections uh, see low voter turnout. Like, in normal years, um, they see low voter turnout and then it's like comparing what it was in 2020, it's going to be a massive drop-off. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, Dr. 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 Oz is pretty typical Republican with a bit more of a focus on some of the, the weird, wacky kind of COVID-19 stuff, um, you know, promoting alternative medicine, hydroquine, hydroxychloroquine, all that sort of good stuff. Um, so, yeah, he's from that kind of sad party. Um, so, yeah, we'll see. We'll see how that goes, <laughs> how that goes for him, I guess. Yeah, uh, he's he's a crazy person. Um, I'm sick of like you know celebrities or quasi celebrities running for president or you know in politics in general. It just it's a bit silly, and we're going to get onto another one a little bit later, a little bit closer to home. Uh, but yeah, he's. I hope he loses, but he probably won't. You know, a Donald Trump endorsement helps with Republicans. It still does. Uh, yeah, but as you said, uh, low low voter turnout might uh, affect what happens here. Yeah, and then LA is about to have a mayoral special election uh, and it has been whittled down to being between Rick Caruso and Karen Bass. Um, Rick Caruso is probably the one that like people that are not in the United States are more familiar with and it's more because that's who Kim Kardashian endorsed and that's who a bunch of other rich celebrities endorsed. Um, he has got like a weird political history. He's formerly a member of the Republican Party and then he was independent for a couple of years. Now he's a member of the Democratic Party. Um, but that was basically when it was convenient to him he became a member because you're not going to win LA uh, as a Republican. Um, there's a reason why most people running just run as independents in these mayoral elections. Yeah, this is kind of a, a race between, uh, you know, rich Democrats and poor Democrats, right? Um, you know, these, these celebrities who uh, would love to consider themselves Democrats but are quite happy to not pay any tax and, you know, fund them. <laughs> and uh, fund the Republicans if it's convenient for them and it'll make them some cash. So yeah, Rick Caruso, former Republican will hopefully lose this seat, but you know, the amount of money that's flowing into that ca campaign is just overwhelming. Yeah. Um, it looks like Caruso has a pretty long history of, uh, <laughs> of political donations. So he's, um, he's these little donations to bypass local planning laws um, and to, uh, he's given quite a bit of money to local politicians as well. So it's always a good sign when that's the kind of bloke you have running for mayor. Yeah, and the one that I think a lot of people are not going to be particularly sad to go is someone that was considered a rising star of the Republican Party up until he went on a podcast and started talking about cocaine-fueled orgies that had been invited to by members of the Republican caucus, and that's Madison Cawthorn. Um, he is, was like the one of the youngest, I think, members of Congress ever, and he will be a one-term, potentially two-term member of Congress because he did lose his primary, which means in January next year he is out of Washington. Um, but he took advantage of his time because he's made quite a bit of money off of speaking fees and... Bitcoin uh, in his time uh, in the uh, in a house. Yeah, well, he's only twenty six years old. That's um, you know, frightening to me. I don't think I'd be ready to 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 go to Congress, but that's Republicans and doing whatever they want to do. Um, I'm sure he'll be back, right? You know, twenty six. I'm sure he'll find another seat to run in. And he'll probably win somewhere. He's going to be around for the next sixty years. So. Yeah, it is what it is, um, this cocaine stuff. Maybe you should have come to Canberra where it's going to be legal soon. Could have um, not have to worry about these. I mean, yeah, he's, right. 
Sorry. I mean, he spoke about it in a way that was like he was morally against it and really affronted by it. Um, it's really, really bizarre being like, oh, these people that I've looked up to for like all of my life, 26, so it wasn't that long, um, and were inviting me to like cocaine-fueled orgies. And he's just like, this is a weird take. And he had the riot act read to him by um, prominent members of the Republican uh, caucus and that sort of thing. I think it will be a while before he returns to DC. I think that he's probably going to end up in state politics for a while if he chooses to remain in politics because he could just, I don't know, join Ben Shapiro at Daily Wire or do stuff for PragerU or Turning Point USA and make a buttload of cash because... That's where the money's at. <laughs> yeah, no, I wouldn't be surprised if he goes and joins like the Trump campaign in some kind of um, speaking or advisory role. I think that'll probably be the, the way he goes. Yeah, it is sad to see the Republican Party lose on the only femboy representation. Um, that's the... <laughs> um, yeah, uh, yeah, Cawthon, I don't know, he's just been controversy after controversy with Cawthon the, the, the past year or so. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not too surprised to see him go but for the last we see them yeah um and we might move to the saturday news that has been dominating the news cycle for the past two weeks now maybe two and a half weeks uh and that was the shooting in uvalde texas um i mean guns are a huge issue in the united states um and it's obviously not a particularly easy topic to talk about when 19 children plus a handful of teachers are killed. But I, it's one of those things where I think that as Australians, we keep coming back to it and being like, well, we've banned guns to an extent. Um, it's not that hard. And then at the same time, when there are 120.5 guns per 100 residents, roughly, that's just registered guns for that matter, Um and they're having massacre after massacre. There's something in the culture that needs to be changed, but can't be changed without some serious money combating the NRA um, and other interest groups that are all about giving people extra guns. Uh, yes. Um, if you're American, you're watching this, your country is a mess. Um, get out effectively. I think it's beyond repair. Um, you know, 45,000 gun deaths in 2020. It's just disgusting and no one's fixing it. Democrats don't fix it. Republicans don't fix it. Um, there's a, a small amount of people that seem to want to fix it, but, you know, they're drowned out by vast amount of cash. Um, the NRA hasn't even, like, it doesn't even have the power it used to in terms of actual lobbyist money or, or lobbyists, as in people. Um, it's just kind of infiltrated the culture to, to the extent that now those ideas are just in literally every Republican's head, Right that you have to have your gun because the government's coming for it and they're going to kill you. That's what it is. And it's just, it's just not true. Right. Also the government has tanks. They've got F40, like F45s. If they wanted to come and get you, guess what? You're not putting up a fight. So yeah. Um, sort your lives out. We banned them in Australia. It works fine. Um, kids aren't being shot at school here. It just doesn't happen. It's not something we have to worry about. Um, when you have, you know, students and teachers being murdered in schools, and the police won't even go in to fix the problem, you know there's an issue, right? And yet nothing gets done about it. There's some empty platitudes, thoughts and prayers, all that stuff, and nothing gets fixed. Um, I, don't, I honestly don't know how to fix this issue now. 
Yeah, it's a pretty um, it, it, not not to even mention that political will. It's a pretty hard, um, pretty difficult issue to legislate in the first place, um, because like within like that death number, right? Um, most of those deaths are from handguns. Um, but the big push would be to like ban assault weapons, right? Because assault weapons are the more um, immediately uh, well, the, the the ones that will do the most damage, right? Um, in, in like concentrated circumstances. Um, but if you actually want to bring the gun deaths down, you have to ban handguns. And I'm, I don't see that happening in the United States, really. Um, because, you know, um, handguns, is, it's a lot easier to run, like, a self-defense case of handguns. Um, you, you know, you know, supposedly, you might, you might need a handgun to defend yourself from an attacker in the night or something. Um, so, I, you know, I don't see that really <laughs> changing, changing anytime soon. Um, I suppose the, the other thing is that uh, I think around 53% of these 45,000 gun deaths are uh, from suicides. Um, because, um, yeah, obviously having a gun in your house um, makes it a lot easier to, to commit suicide. Um, it's a bit of a um, it's a bit of a risk factor in that in that sense. Um, so yeah, if you want to um, if you want to take on like these gun deaths, um, you'd also have to really fix some of the serious issues with the mental health system in the United States as well. So um, yeah, yeah. So some some real uh, legislative challenges there for the United States. Yeah, I don't. I don't disagree with that mental health argument, right? Like, it's, but it's a problem everywhere. It's not just America that has that mental health problem, but America is the only country where these gun deaths happen, right? It is easy to kill yourself if you have a gun in the house. It's a much harder and much more daunting task to do it in a different way. Um, like a gun is instant, right? And as graphic as this conversation is, it's an instant thing to happen um, where the other methods take a lot longer um, and they're, they're scary to face, right? I think that's... That's obviously true. Other countries don't have this, have this problem. So like, and to the idea that the culture is different, we all watch the same movies, same TV shows. So all that kind of stuff doesn't really play into it. It's when it comes down to it, the guns are the issue, right? They just need to ban all of the guns. Well, it's, and it's not even like, to be fair, you do not need to ban all guns outright, but there are other laws that you also need to add on top of banning guns. Um, a big one is like regarding storage and that guns need to be properly stored in a manner where they are not loaded. So your child cannot pick up a gun thinking it's playing, like playing with a toy and accidentally shoot one of their parents or one of their siblings. Cause that's something that happens in the United States. Um, that sounds absurd to the rest of the world. What has happened, at least, is that the U.S. House of Representatives has passed a gun control bill. Um, it gives federal federal courts the ability to remove guns from people that are determined a risk to themselves and others, um, increase in red flag laws, boosting in funding. Um, ultimately, that's not something that's going to get through the Senate. Um, and look, at this point, it is really, really frustrating for people that pay attention to US politics and even people in the US and go, the politicians do not move with the majority of the country because majority of the country are in favour of red flag laws and that sort of thing. But also all the people that cry about the constitution and it's my second amendment right to own a gun, blah, 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 blah. Um, even looking beyond the like whole, oh, well, you can't have a, like you couldn't have a gun that fired a hundred and something rounds per minute back when the constitution was written. They are currently trying to undo the fourth amendment in parts of the US currently. About a hundred miles from the border all around the country, um, you can now have your home 
searched by Border Patrol um, just by thinking that you might have someone. They don't need a warrant. They can just go in and do it. And if they kill someone or seriously injure someone, they will face no legal consequences. But, but the guns, the guns aren't the problem. <laughs> like, you, you will get charged if you then shoot a Border Patrol agent. You will go away for a very long time, even if you try and argue the castle doctrine. But hey, like only that's the only amendment that actually matters. Yeah, there have been 27 amendments, right? Including, you know, the 18th that was repealed. Um, there's no reason, like it's called an amendment. It literally means that you can change it. But it's not going to happen, right? Because there's two amendments people know in the US. It's the first and the second. Apart from past that, no one reads it, right? No one has any idea what the 7th, 15th, people don't know what these are. It's... Once again, it's the NRA, NRA culture that pushed the Second Amendment so hard for so long that it's just ingrained in people's minds now. Uh, and it's just, it's horrific. And, and, you know, people are dying. So, and, you know, people are going to criticise us for bringing this up on here and why Australians talking about it. Um, it's, you know, it's not kids in your country being shot. At the end of the day, kids are kids everywhere, right? You're allowed to care about kids no matter what country they live in, whether it's America or Yemen or the Philippines, right? You don't want people being killed anywhere. And, you know, that kind of, that kind of argument's just incorrect. Yeah. Um, and I think that while there were parts of what Matthew McConaughey said uh, at, in, sorry, hold on. While there were parts that what Matthew McConaughey said at the White House were a bit, not, cringe isn't the right word, but you're just like, you're just, it's, your empty platitudes um the ability to humanize the children and the fact that one of the kids could literally only be identified by their sneakers um is something really powerful and it's something that people around the world go holy shit like that could be my kids but I don't live in the country where this could happen um and thank god I don't because while we've seen other countries have different kinds of attacks, um, it doesn't happen as regularly as the United States. And that's the big thing is that, like, in the, like, days after the Uvalde, Uvalde shooting, there were multiple other mass shootings that saw five-plus people die. And a mass shooting is four casualties, not including the gunman. Um, and a casualty can just be injuries. So the fact that it's more than five people dying, um, not including or including a gunman, is horrific. And it's just so regular that is part of what is so despicable, I guess, to outsiders as well as to Americans. Yeah, I think it's that regularity that's kind of, you know, clouded everyone's judgment, right? Um, when we saw what happened in New Zealand, the action was taken straight away because it's not an event that happens all the time. When... Uh, the kill, children were killed in Norway. Action was taken straight away because it's not something that happens all the time. But this happens every day in America. And like what Matthew McConaughey said was, was largely correct, right? Whether you agree with, you know, actors and celebrities being at the White House, this kind of thing is, is a different story. Um, he's obviously from there, so it makes sense. He speaks really well. Um, he's an actor, so obviously he's going to know how to deliver a speech pretty well. But, um, you know, that was, it was said with, with all the correct um, emotion, he, he did everything correct there and you know he's expressed interest in in running for politics before this might be this speech might be the start of that so uh it's not surprising that he would come out and say something and i think like him coming out can't hurt the argument at all can it? 
it also helps that he's from Uvalde originally, I believe. Um, so that does give it some weight of this is someone from the region that potentially knows people that either lost a child or um, just are somehow connected to the school in some way, or shape or form. But yeah, I think that there to some level celebrity should be speaking out because that's basically the only way anything gets done, it seems like, in that country. But at the same time, I think that most people agree is that when nothing happened after Sandy Hook, which was, what, 10 years ago now, maybe even 11 years, um, people don't believe that there's going to be any movement on gun reform because once you decided that it's okay that children die in a school, then what what are you supposed to do? Uh, We might move, sticking with the United States, but they are finally doing hearings for the January 6th committee um, and a lot of interesting information has come out of it. Some of it less surprising than others, but the most surprising thing is probably that it's believed basically that Mike Pence is the reason why um, Donald Trump didn't basically install a dictatorship in the United States 18 months ago. Uh, yeah, it's not too late for him to do it. I'm sure he'll be able to do it once he wins in 2024 as well. So, uh, yeah, a dictatorship isn't out of the question as of yet. Um, yeah, Mike Pence did the right thing, and it's probably going to uh, make his political career uh, untenable for the future, right? Um, you know, there's so many Donald Trump Republican voters now that all he has to do is, you know, say that Pence is a liar or whatever, and, and his career's over. So, yeah, unfortunate for him, but, yeah, good on him for doing the right thing. Yeah, um, I didn't actually hear too much about this. Uh, what what did Pence do? Um, his job, basically, what he was supposed to do, which was certify the election results. Oh, yeah, 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 of course, yeah. Yeah, because what Trump and his team, like, team essentially wanted to do was um, have Pence send it back to the states. They were going to put in yeah, the electors, yeah, yeah. and the electors were going to call Georgia and Arizona and all uh, that for Trump. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, no, I, I get that. Yeah. I mean, with that, the other interesting thing just on the whole, like, Mike Pence stuff is that because we've all heard the, like, chanting of, like, hang Mike Pence and that sort of thing. Allegedly, Trump said that, like, maybe they should. Um, that was what witnesses on the scene said. But also, apparently, um, on the day of Trump, like, sent a different Secret Service team than what is usually Mike Pence's Secret Service team. Uh, to pick him up, to take him to the White House, and Pence chose not to go with them and waited for his original team, which then makes it sound like the threat on his life was all the more serious from the morning, let alone, like, when the actual riots started. Yeah, this kind of storyline wouldn't be out of place on, like, House of Cards or something. It's all a bit, (laughs) just a bit crazy, and it's a a lot to take in at once, right? Um, This January 6th committee is... They got a lot of work out of them because you know, to get to the bottom of of whatever was going on and who was organising this kind of stuff is going to take I don't know probably years of investigation. So yeah, unfortunately, it looks like this is going to be the next um you know the next Russia come the twenty twenty four election. It's going to be you know the CIA or the FBI is against us. Um, you know they hate Republicans or that kind of stuff. I'm mostly just frustrated that it, you know January six is my birthday and it's it's kind of ruined that day going forward. So, well, it happened on January 7th in Australia, that at is, least. That is the only solace I take out of this. 
Um, but I guess looking at 2024, uh, who do we think is going to win slash who do we think should run, uh, considering we are a bit under two and a half years out from the election? Yes. Okay. So it looks like Bernie Sanders is going to run again, right? And, you know, it would make sense that I would want him to win. Um, that I've I supported him both times beforehand. I'll probably do it again. Um, do I think he can win? No. Right? He's like 98 years old. He looks like Yoda at this point. It just ain't happening. So I, th- I think we've got to put a line through that one. I've said this before. I don't think I've said it on the podcast yet. The ideal candidate for the Democrats is The Rock. Okay. US politics is moving to a, you know, celebrity system, right? You have to have that celebrity cachet to even, you know, get in the door, basically. Um, the Rock is, you know, not a super Democrat, right? He's not Bernie Sanders. Um, but what he is, is, you know, sensible, does a great speech, um, you know, appeals to that young male group. It's actually, you know, that leans Republican, which I would think would switch to The Rock, if that makes sense. And then, you know, his TV show is based on him running for president. So he clearly has some kind of um, want to do that. It's, it's not something he's, he's made up. He's got, you know, billion-dollar business deals, all that kind of stuff. He's not an ideal Democratic candidate if you want progressive things to happen, but he is ideal if you want him to beat Donald Trump. I, like, we saw in 2016 that Donald Trump was not scared of Hillary Clinton on the debate stage or of Joe Biden, really. I can guarantee you he's going to be pretty scared of the rock on a debate stage. Yeah. Um, I, in terms of what I think will win, I, thought, I think Trump's going to win. Um, I'm, I'm not too hopeful. I think Trump will win. Um, it looks like his chances are looking pretty good um, in terms of getting the Republican primary, uh, primary, like the Republican support. Um, I'm, struggle, I'm really struggling to think about a Democrat who could beat him at this point. Um, right. no, no, no one from the usual cast of Democrats, I don't think. Um, I feel like Kamala, Kamala uh, Gavin, um, uh, these, um, they, these sorts of folks just, I don't think these would cut it for the places where you really need to cut it to win the Electoral College. Um, I, I think yeah, the, the Rock certainly could do it if, if you decided to. I feel like that's, uh, that's an option. Um, Bernie, um, uh, I don't know. Um, Bernie could do well in some of those really important Midwestern seats, but um, obviously pretty pretty extreme by the political the American political system standards. Um, I don't know. I feel like the Democratic Party would really be behind him to the extent that they need to be. Um, if they really went to bat to campaign for him, then. Uh, like maybe maybe you could do it. Um, I think uh, I think the other thing would be um, one of the reasons that Biden the, the Democrats were able to get the Senate this time was because Biden uh, was quite popular with uh, key demographics in Georgia um, that that Bernie wouldn't have attracted as well with um, from the, the stats that I've seen. I was thinking also suddenly play into things. Um, I, yeah, I think if Bernie runs and he, he wins, sure, but fantastic. I, I'd love that. Um, you know, he's, he's not, yeah, he's, he's pretty old, but you know, he's not like uh, Mahatia Mohammed old for the, the ex Malaysian uh, prime minister. He, he, was, he, was like, he was like in his 90s. Um, so, you know, you can take a page out of, out of Mahatia's book, um, I reckon. And I, I don't know, maybe he could, he could do something there, but yeah, my hopes aren't high. I reckon. Um, 
Yeah, I think the Biden presidency hasn't been too bad, all things considered, in terms of getting what could be done done. But um, yeah, I think it, it's going to be too easy to spin everything bad, um, or to spin the weaknesses of the economy and such um, into a really strong narrative for someone like Trump, who will say that we can, we can fix all this. Um, but, you know, not really. <laughs> So I think that the only way that the Democrats can win is if Trump is the Republican nominee. Um, I know that that's kind of a bold take, but that is what is going to cause the, pardon my language, suck it the fuck up and vote kind of campaigning that has happened for the past two elections. I think someone like Ron DeSantis, who is probably the next most likely uh, Republican nominee, won't get that same kind of energy, despite the fact that he is demonstrably worse than Trump because he's competent um, and knows how to get the stuff that he wants done, done. I also think that realistically, as far as the main players in the Democratic Party, none of them are electable for president. Biden's too old, can't go on camera enough, Um we've seen his weaknesses I mean wasn't it Obama was the one that said like never discount the way that like Joe can stuff something up it's that's not the quote but it is something along the lines of that um I can see the Democratic Party basically doing the all right Bernie we'll give it to you now and then or give you the nominee nomination now and then Bernie somehow ends up winning it um it's one of those things, though, that will just make the Democratic Party look like idiots if they let Bernie Sanders have the nomination and he wins the presidency. Because it says that what everyone was saying back in 2016 um, was correct. Because if you're going to run a populist ca- against a populist campaign, realistically running a centrist campaign of someone that feels entitled to the presidency like Hillary or is just not an awful person apparently like Joe Biden doesn't really work you want people that are actually passionate to vote for you and then you tell the center of your party to suck it up and vote um that's what the Republicans did it worked and the Democrats have been flailing essentially ever since Trump won that election um the midterms are going to be bad for the Democrats the only thing that has probably helped them is the fact that there's now been pushes for gun reform and Ultimately, with that comes people being like, well, if you vote for this person, you're in favour of your kids getting shot in school, which is bad campaigning and completely in bad faith, but it's still something people are going to use. Um, And then, I mean, it's realistically, 2024 is the Democrats trying to say one thing. I don't think they even emerge in 2024 with the Senate or the House, but they could emerge with the presidency. If they have all three gone, I mean, if it's someone competent like Ron DeSantis, that country is in big trouble. Uh, yeah, that country's already in big trouble. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to see Bernie win. I'm just, you know, he'll be 82 by the time that election comes around. Um, that's very old, right? Like, that is super, super old. Um, it's hard to campaign uh, when you're that old. We already saw, like, he had a heart attack during the last campaign. Um, like he just, I just don't want to see him take that risk, you know? Uh, and I'll, like the Democrats have to win. So, yeah, like Joe Biden's not going to win. Kamala Harris is going to win. Uh, Mayor Pete, just that's what we have to say there, right? So, yeah, um, 
I, just, I don't see it happening. The other option might be Elizabeth Warren, um, you know, and Bernie kind of getting behind that campaign from the outset. That might be the best chance if you want like that a more progressive leftist uh, to run. But yeah, for me, she's, she's not even progressive. Rock. That's part of the problem. Like, which is US progressive. But even by US standards, she's not that progressive with the amount, like the way that she's voted for the past two years. But also on top of that, her own political history, which is actually a weapon that will get used against her. Um, Ultimately, her campaign is the reason why Biden won the nomination, because she refused to drop out last time. And also with that. Just like Hillary, people found her really disingenuous. I think that sexism plays a huge role in that. But also at the same time, you need to find a way to appear genuine. Amy Amy Klobuchar seemed like a monster, but at least like you knew that she also believes she's a monster. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I, I mean, I think think Elizabeth Warren is definitely the the platform she went for last election with was definitely a progressive platform with some things like single payer healthcare and such. Um, this is definitely pretty progressive stuff, I would say. Um, yeah, I, I mean, you know, uh, some, some things not as progressive about her, I guess, but I think that platform at least was, was certainly a progressive one. Um, yeah, I think Elizabeth Warren wouldn't, wouldn't be too bad, though. I'm not sure if she would be able to win over those, those important um, Midwestern states. I think she might be, you know, she much of like one of those... Too, too much of a coastal elite aesthetic, I would, I would say. Unlike someone like Bernie, who has more of that, that sort of working, uh, that working class uh, sort of, yeah, God, aesthetic. We'll say, we'll say, we'll say, we'll say aesthetic again. It's not that, that, that working class, uh, that working class aesthetic. Um, yeah, so and I think that would help him in those those key Midwestern states, but. Um, yeah, Elizabeth Warren probably wouldn't be too bad, but I just don't think she could uh, she could win the election. Yeah, but yeah, the thing is, like with a primary system, you never know what's going to happen, right? Like mm-hmm. someone could come out of nowhere, like Obama did in uh, two thousand and eight. Like, there's every chance that happens. So you know, we could see someone completely new that we haven't heard of yet. Yeah, I mean, someone new that we have definitely heard of if we follow sport in Australia is Justin Langer, and there are rumours that he could be the new leader of the Liberal Party in Western Australia. Uh, Look, it'll take a little bit. He's got to basically get parachuted into one of their, what, three seats that they, or two seats that they have in WA Parliament. Presumably it'll be Cottesloe, but... I mean, ex-cricket coach, ex, I guess, cricket hero for some people, turned WA Liberal leader. It is something. Uh, yes. So Justin Langer is um, not liked by people he's worked with. Um, that's pretty obvious. Um, he's kind of grating. Um, that's at least what former Australian players will tell you. And they'll tell you that pretty openly, even though you won't be allowed to report it. Um, he's like he's just too intense. Uh, people, as I said, don't like him. So I've met Justin Langer, I think, three times on a one-on-one basis when I was in WA and like doing cricket stuff, and then like a bunch of times on Zoom doing other uh, press conference things. He's just not. There's no charisma there. Uh, I don't think like he. The reason he's called a legend is because he called him calls himself a legend. Um, he was smart enough to retire on the day that Shane Warne and Glenn McGrath retired. And that they kind of grouped those three together, even though like anyone who follows cricket know that they don't really, you can't really group them all together. Um, just in terms of his actual politics, though, like he's 
you know, praised John Howard, which is a major red flag for me. Um, you know, he's the reason this has come up is because he's neighbours with Richard and Margaret Court, um, you know, tennis Margaret Court, anti-trans Margaret Court, uh, and Richard, former WA Liberal Party president. Um, and they've kind of been talking about this for a long time. Um, for me, yeah, there's just not a lot there that would allow him to, to lead a party. Um, and effectively, that's what it is, right? And especially lead a party out of um, out of kind of what's almost in its deathbed, right? Like the WA Liberal Party has, you know, two seats in the House, obviously more in the upper house because that's how the proportional representation works. But, yeah, I don't think he, he has the ability to, to, to rescue this party, especially like he's very conservative, um, like very, very conservative. Uh, a lot of cricketers are, unfortunately. There's only a few that are a little bit more sensible. But yeah, um, but at the end of the day, really, like the WA Liberals can't do any worse, can they? Uh, like they're, they're current leader, no one's ever heard of. And he's not even the opposition leader, um, the Nationals leader is. So yeah, it'll be interesting. Like Justin Lang has denied that he's going to do this, but for me, like we've just got to stop bringing celebrities into politics. It's just you know, like continuation of this American cycle, right? Yeah, uh, I, I, you know, I'm not a cricket head, so I don't know much about Justin Langer. Um, but you know, uh, yeah, WA Liberals, they're, they're a bit screwed. Uh, looks like they're just going for a bit of a change of tact. Um, going for, I don't know, maybe they're hoping the the cricket reputation will. Went over a few of those Western Australian bogans or something. I'm I'm not too sure. Uh, just 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 throwing everything at the wall, seeing what sticks. Um, yeah, I guess I guess we'll see if Justin Langer sticks. Yeah, I don't think parachuting him into somewhere like Cottesloe is actually the correct move. I think you need to wait for a by-election in a marginal seat. Um, and have him run against someone from Labor. I think that if you're gonna do it, that's how you do it. Um, but as you said, they're on their deathbed. They need an alternative to what they're doing because they're just disappearing slowly but surely. We saw what happened to the WA Liberals of the federal election. People didn't think that was going to happen. People thought that WA was probably still going to swing towards Labor, but not quite so drastically um, and cause quite so many seats to fall. Um, I, I don't know. I I think it's a bad idea. I think it's a bad idea to get um, former athletes as well as celebrities involved uh, in politics. Whilst I think they have every right to talk about it, there is also the fact of actually doing the work as a politician is very different to doing the work as an athlete, even on the media side of things. Um, and as you said, Langer's not charismatic. He doesn't have the, like gumption really to be a political winner um yes he could part in part coach a team to winning the ashes and winning a couple of world cups but that also has to do with the people in your side that are actually the faces of your side you as the face of the side has not been successful (laughs) yeah as you said you never know but we'll move to gaffes of the week and our first one is vote compass um which asked some pretty good questions leading up to the election and then following the election has had perhaps the most unhinged and trying to figure out how racist this country is kind of surveys that i've seen in quite some time um so on a scale of positive five to negative five with zero also being included as like a neither 
uh, Vox Pop Labs who do Vote Campus uh, polled how people feel about immigrants, Indigenous people, white people, Asian people, heterosexuals, Jews, atheists, Arab people, people who choose not to be vaccinated against COVID-19 and people in general. There was more to this, but aside from as a joke, wanting to put negative five for people in general, this is not a good poll at all. Yeah, I'm not really sure what they're trying to gauge with this kind of um, these kind of questions. Uh, you know, does it really matter what you think of people in general? Um, how is that affecting policy? Uh, I don't think just because you don't like people in general means you want to cut health policy. I don't think that's the correlation. Um, and you know whether people are, are racist, they're pro- also probably not going to answer this truthfully, right? They're going to be worried that it'll get leaked or whatever. So it just doesn't make a lot of sense to ask these kind of uh, ridiculous questions. Yeah, it's a bit weird because for most of those, like, there's really only like one like reasonable response. It's just like neutral, right? It's just, like you'd answer neutral for, for like almost all of those, except for I don't know, maybe like the the, the vaccine one and a couple of others um yeah so it's just really weird for that reason and then it's weird in the sense because i don't think it gives you as you said right it doesn't give you much in the way of valuable data because if you're trying to measure racism um like most of that racism come from like on like unconscious biases anyway it's like like a racist person probably wouldn't admit to it um like that so blatantly on a test so you're not really gathering anything that's that's all too um yeah that's 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 all too significant so, so like, statistically speaking just seems like a bit of a bit of a mess of a, <laughs> of, a of a quiz, and I, I do wonder who um, I do wonder who who approved that. I think you underestimate the abilities of racists to own their racism. Um, you've obviously got the people that are like they think of themselves almost as well-meaning racists that will still admit to some stuff, and then you've got the people that think that the most offensive thing to ever be called is a racist, despite the fact that they are quite explicitly racist a lot of the time um but again it doesn't do anything um it's very different to the vote compass poll prior to the election um which does actually like relate to policy agenda um and helps inform your vote a little bit I guess I kind of disregarded it myself I'm not gonna lie but then also you've just got so much in it that makes people go well I want to see what the other questions are because these are the questions that are public that people have been sharing around and if the questions actually relating to policy aren't bad maybe it's not as bad as it's being made out to be but if this is what people are seeing um it's a whole other level of bad maybe either get rid of it or adjust your questions sooner rather than later yeah, uh, following up to vote compass is obviously important, but yeah, these questions are hopefully just a small part of what is a, a better overall uh, sample. But our second gaffe of the week is recurring character at Edge of the Election, and that is Josh Frydenberg, um, because there's a few sneaky rumours going around that he might be interested in the job of AFL CEO because Gillian McLaughlin is resigning from the position at the end of this season and the availability is there as to whether you give it to him is a whole other question. Yeah, um, Jeff Frydenberg, as far as I can tell, has no, no connection with football at all. Um, you know, apart from supporting Carlton, there's not really 
you know, anything in terms of playing or anything in the past that would suggest that he would be suitable for this role. Um, I don't know. I guess he just went to Centrelink one day and they gave him a bunch of like a list of jobs that he might be qualified for. Um, that might have been the way this came about. But uh, yeah, AFL CEO is, is not really in his wheelhouse, I wouldn't have thought. Uh, it feels like a really cynical player to just gather more power about himself now that he's lost his position in Parliament. And he's like, you know, oh, AFL CEO. That's a that's a pretty big deal. That's a that, that's a that's a top job uh, for me to really continue to exert influence on Australian society. Uh, I don't know that's what it feels like to me. Uh, but yeah, I'm I don't know too much about the AFL, but I, I know Josh Frydenberg has 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 that F all to do with it. Um, so yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know, Josh. What what are you doing? That's, that is the exact question that I am asking. Like, for starters, do you trust someone that supports the Carlton Football Club that is just so used to losing year Well, Gil supports St Kilda, so. Yeah, but St Kilda have had a little bit more success. They've made a final in the past couple of years. They made a grand final 12 years ago. Um, but, like, there's that. There's also just when the like the sport is dealing with some amount of money issues we're aware of because of covid um and what's happened with the past few seasons and crowds being at record lows what does Frydenberg know about bringing people back to the games which is a problem for them but also aside from misappropriating funds how good was he as treasurer because from my memory, and it wasn't that long ago, he wasn't that great of a treasurer. Um, the budget was not well balanced, despite how well they claimed it was costed. Um, and a organisation that is having money issues needs someone that is going to be able to bring fans back into the sport. Uh, realistically means you need someone that is a better face for the AFL. And Frydenberg is not a face for the AFL. They borderline need an ex-player um rather than Frydenberg or unfortunately what could happen an Eddie Maguire type uh, I'm not against Eddie Maguire doing that job I think if you find out it um I think yeah so there's three aspects of the AFL CEO job number one's media like Gil's been he's on TV all the time right um Josh Frydenberg as far as anyone can tell is not good at that that's like his the worst aspect of his job. The second aspect is, you know, leading what is the AFL. Uh, it's like a big organisation with accountants and all that kind of, of good stuff underneath him. Uh, he never really got that chance to lead the Liberal Party, but uh, I'm sure he'd be, be fine at that, I guess. Uh, and the third is like dealing with the social issues that come up with the AFL. Uh, and the big one that's going to come up over the next five years is trans people in the AFL. Um and I'm not confident that he would deal with that in the correct way at all. Um, if it's like based on what members of the Liberal Party think at the moment, it would be a, a disaster, not just for people, but for the AFL in general to be, you know, taking those kind of comments uh, into the sport. So, yeah, hopefully this this doesn't get up and it's probably, it's, hopefully it's just rumours, but you never know. I mean, the problem with it being rumours or not rumours is the fact that he's saying he wouldn't rule it out which really could just be a ploy for attention now that he's not the member for Guyong and not the treasurer of the country anymore um I mean he's gotten plenty of attention as to what he'll do next but I mean what you want to lose your federal seat election and then lose the election for who's going to be the AFL CEO that's really going to set your career tra trajectory on a good path um 
might just move to please explain. Um, it's been an interesting week. Um, we might start with the lettuce crisis because Anthony Albanese has said that he will be taking cabbage getting put in KFC burgers instead of iceberg lettuce to the cabinet meeting uh, this week, which look, lettuce is ridiculously expensive at the moment. I think it's like $12 a head in some places for iceberg lettuce. Um, that's absurd. Iceberg lettuce is also just not good. Um, <laughs> so I don't know what KFC is doing as to using cabbage as the alternative. I would have thought at least go with a lack alternative of a different kind of lettuce or spinach. But cabbage is just absurd. But it's even more absurd that Albanese is taking it this seriously. The KFC isn't the problem. It's the prices for everyone that is the problem. Uh, I've got to disagree with you on all points there, Jackie. Number one, <laughs> this is the biggest issue in the country at the moment and Albanese needs to address it right away. Uh, number two, let, iceberg lettuce is delicious. What are you talking about? It's, it's the best lettuce. Boring. It's terrible. Yeah, it's lettuce. It's not meant to be just eaten. Like you put it on stuff, like a zinger burger. Um, <laughs> so the, what they're using is like a mix of uh, coleslaw, uh, like what is their coleslaw cabbage except dry with some lettuce in it as well. So it kind of gives that crunch. Um, it's not the same, that's for sure, but uh, understandable given the current lettuce crisis, which, as you said, you know, $12 a head for what is um, a staple grocery item is uh, ridiculous. Like it's people kind of, I, I've stopped buying lettuce. Um, it, it's just unaffordable. I don't think I've stepped into a KFC for like the past four or five years. Um, <laughs> there's, not, there's not much for me to KFC now. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, uh, yeah, I'm a true uh, working class hero standing up for the, for the Australian everyman um, and, the, and, the, uh, and the KFC burger, I suppose. I mean, Joel, you can enter into the lettuce debate that we're having. but Yeah, no, that, that's true. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I do like, I do like lettuce, iceberg like lettuce. Um, I, I wouldn't have it by itself, um, but like, you know, I'm, yeah, I, it doesn't really taste like much. It just has a bit of a crunch to it. So yeah. that's, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, yeah I'll, I'll chuck it in something, you know, have it, it, it's fine. I don't know. If I was ordering like a Zinger burger at KFC at the moment, I'd be like, hold the cabbage. <laughs> I would not be getting it with the cabbage. I would just get the chicken on the bun. Um, granted, I mean, the burgers... Okay, I say I'm not great. Just in oh, case these are like such it. bad takes. What are you talking it's, about? No, no, no. Let me get me. Let me hear me out. Hear me out. It's the bread that's the problem with the burgers at KFC. That's like burgers problems at fast food joints in general. Is like let's deal with the bread crisis at bread. fast food joints because their bread is always crusty and gross. And I want like at least kind of sort of a little bit like fresh bread for um, my burgers. That's more what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, better, better. <laughs> I'm not, not going to have KFC hate on this podcast. <laughs> Was it hating on the like actual zinger part of the zinger burger? Let me just say that. Um, but we might move on to something a little more serious. And that is uh, people crying on Twitter about Labor losing the popular vote because in Australia, it's super important as to who wins the popular vote in an election. Uh, yeah. I, uh, what do you say about this? I mean, it's just people not understanding how the, the system works here, preferential voting and all that um, good stuff. Like, And I've heard it criticised by... 
politicians on Sky News, like Liberal Party politicians, uh, and they don't seem to be aware that they also didn't win the popular vote three years ago. So why did they get a, you know, why, why is their election legitimate and Labor's not? It's, yeah, it's all just, it's all rather silly, really. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You have to go back right. pretty far in Australian politics to see who's won the popular vote in this country. Um, the most prominent one, I think, is 1943. Uh, so, you know, wartime prime minister. Um, it's pretty easy to win the popular, like win an election if you are the incumbent in wartime, which ultimately does make it easier to win the popular vote. And I think it's Fraser or maybe McCann that won the popular vote once, but it hasn't really happened then. The same way that like the Liberals have only won the majority on their own a handful of times, the most recent being Howard's first election. Like it's just, it's nonsense. And it is the Americanization of Australian politics just hitting once again. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you have an issue with, um, with Labor's percentage of the popular vote, then, I mean, like, um, uh, geez, go, go look at some other, like, like actual like, proportional representation system and see, see, see what the counts are like there, like New Zealand or Germany or whatever. It's going to be, it's probably going to be lower than, than Labor, I would assume. But yeah, you know, obviously it's just, um, it's trying to levy that same criticism that you would make at the US, um, or that like, maybe that we or other countries make at the US, that... Um, the electoral college isn't, uh, you know, get you, get you the popular vote. But, yeah, it's a bit different, right? Because in the US, the, the issue is that, um, you know, you, you could, that, that your vote often doesn't count for anything if you don't happen to pick the winner, right? But the reason that, the reason here that, like, the leading government doesn't have the popular vote is because those people that did not give it the popular vote wanted another party ahead of that party, but still probably supported that party in, in some sense, right? Um, this is a real misunderstanding of preferential voting, um, real misunderstanding of how minor parties are operating within the Australian political landscape right now. And this is a real uh, signal as to some uh, like incoherence in terms of, <laughs> in terms of uh, one's understanding of the Australian political system. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just... It's absurd as far as the take is concerned. Um, and I do think that this does just come from paying attention to other countries' politics harder than our own country's politics. Um, but also people on Twitter are just going to have crazy takes. That's ultimately what it is. And they'll find something to cry about. And this week it's been the popular vote rather than the price of lettuce which is actually something that people could be complaining about on Twitter but weren't. Yeah, like people are going to complain on Twitter all the time, so uh, I wouldn't take anything they're saying all that seriously. Yeah, well, speaking of people complaining on Twitter, because this is another one that stemmed out of Twitter, I believe, uh, is someone having a bit of a complaint about the fact that we care more about the sports than the arts in this country, but from the lens of we should care about the arts more than sport, um, to which I think everyone on this podcast will say, why can't we care about both? Um, why is it not important to care about both? Both. I think that we all agree that the arts need more funding um, and need to be treated better <laughs> than what they currently are. But it doesn't have to be one or the other. And just because you don't care about one, doesn't mean that like the plurality of people don't 
yeah, I think um, it's just a, a fundamental misunderstanding about what um, culture is. I, I was doing a little bit of research for this uh, this topic beforehand and came across this great website that does a little bit of both, um, edgeofthecrowd.com, uh, a little bit of sport, a little bit of culture and some politics as well, um, kind of caters for everyone and, you know, puts them both on a pedestal where they, where they belong. I think they, they're really good. I think we should always definitely follow what they're doing. Yeah, um, I mean, you know, obviously um, I'm a bit less sports sports heavy than, than you two. Uh, but, yeah, we, we, we probably should care about both. Um, I think, yeah, I'd say I, I, do, I, do think, I do think arts and culture are probably more important than sports. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll make the controversial take. Um, I think they, uh, they promote um, self-actualization for humans in a way that I'm not sure watching sport ever could. But maybe that's just I never had that sort of engagement with sport. Um, but like I just don't think that sport can do the things that like art art can do. Yeah, I mean sport is, except for motorsport, are uh, one of the few things that can be considered probably a meritocracy in the sense of like if you work hard enough slash have the right kind of genetics, um, you can be successful. Um just because you are tall does not mean you're going to be great at basketball. You've got to actually work at that sort of thing. Um, I believe that the take stemmed out of State of Origin and the International Film Festival in Sydney. I think that's what was, they were both on the same night and naturally the State of Origin was getting more attention. Um, the State of Origin is also in Sydney that night. So of course it's going to get more attention. It is a like one in three a year kind of event. Um, but also, to a slight extent, like, it's a film festival. Um, we have film festivals all the time. My local cinema has a different film festival on every two weeks. Um, so there is a little bit of it's not going to get that much attention. The Elvis premieres in Australia this past weekend have been pretty hot and it looks so like, like there's been crowds there. Is that to see the actors or is it just to see the movie? Like, I don't really know. Um, I think that the arts need more attention and yes, something like the International Film Festival should get better promoted in this country. Um, but it's also not a like-for-like comparison. If it was comparing like a normal NRL match getting heaps more attention considering NRL fans don't show up for their sport um, to the International Film Festival, maybe there's an argument, but the state of origin is an outlier and as a result, it's of course going to get more attention and also get 80,000 fans in seats. Yeah, I think that's the thing, right? It's the amount of people that can go to something. Like you can have 80,000 people in one stadium watching uh, a sporting event, 100,000 in Melbourne, um, but you can't have that at a film festival. Uh, you just, it's just impossible, right? The numbers are much smaller. It's on a much smaller scale. Um, and, you know, it's we've talked about it before, but it's the government's job to step in there and, and raise arts funding to have... Uh, more of it and better quality so people engage with it more. Um, but, like, if we're talking of films, um, people are engaging with that kind of stuff all the time. The idea that people aren't watching TV and only watching sport is wrong. Um, you know, poetry and stuff is a different story. That's kind of a, a niche a niche thing, right? Um, but then there's, there's niche sports as well that don't get that attention. So overall, like, we have the ability to be able to focus on both. 
One or two. Yeah. You're more likely to get, like, you're going to get more people into a pub on a weekend uh, that's like a pub gig than you are going to get to see people watch the twos um, and the footy on the weekend. Like, it's one of those things where there's different comparisons that can be made where arts will win or sports will win. Um, it, it's never going to be an even playing field once you get to the top, but an international film festival is not the equal to the state of origin, a Harry Styles concert or some other big mm. artist playing in a big venue like the MCG or another Melbourne stadium like Marvel. That's your actual like comparison. Um, yeah. I just, I think people that are in the arts a little bit want to complain sometimes about how they're hard done by but they complain about the silly things rather than like the stuff that's actually important towards getting more support towards the arts. Cause this just annoys people. Yeah. I am one of those people complaining about the arts. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, but we might move on to probably one of the more despicable stories from the Australian media in particular this week and that is the Sydney Morning Herald uh, trying to out Rebel Wilson, her coming forward with her own relationship with her female partner. Uh, and then subsequently the Sydney Morning Herald having a tantrum about it and basically calling her a bunch of names, um, sooking, and then admitting in turn that they were going to out her um, because they asked about the relationship, asked for comment on the relationship and said, you have two days to respond and within that two-day window that's when she chose to come out but I mean that's coming out on coercion that's for sure yeah um pretty despicable stuff by the Sydney Morning Herald against um an actor that gets plenty of hate already um I for me I don't understand why I quite like Rebel Wilson she does good stuff and has done um for a long time whether it's in Australia or stuff in America but yeah, this kind of, um, well, the Sydney Morning Herald's done, like, to complain afterwards that they were treated wrongly by getting called out is ridiculous. Um, if you're going to have bad journalism practices like that, you have to be ready for when it gets called out. And um, Bevan Shields has been particularly bad over the last few days in, like, saying initially that this wasn't what happened and now he's kind of retracted it. And today he's come out and kind of tried to own it. It's all just... Yeah, all, all wrong, and I'd expect that he'd be out of a job in the next few days. Yeah, it's, it's really gross for one of Australia's newspapers of record to be engaging, like, essentially, like, this is, like, real, like, paparazzi behaviour, right? Like, assuming you have, like, some, uh, some right to knowledge and, uh, like, ability to publish um on someone else like sexuality that's yeah it's pretty it's pretty it's pretty messed up it's not there's only any any excuse for it despite what the sydney morning herald will offer and despite whatever excuses are good old good old bev will be i'll <laughs> uh, be coming up with but yeah i don't know just pretty really disappointing really gross from, from the sydney morning herald i think the biggest thing that is just ridiculous about this is that they told on themselves like she did not say that they came to her, like, approaching about this. They basically had a cry that they didn't get the exclusive and then everyone went, 
hang on a second, you did what? Like, it's once people actually read the article that they went, whoa, this is actually seriously messed up. Um, I, like, how Bevan Shields let that article um, go to print is insane. As people that work for a media organisation, there is stuff that, like, we look at and go, mm, no, let's not do that because it's either not actually a very good story or additionally... Uh, it's not our job to be doing this and it's not like the Sydney Morning Herald or any outlet's uh, job to decide when Rebel Wilson comes out with her girlfriend. Like, it's just absurd. Um, Bevan Shields has had some bad takes even prior to this recently. He has had a really bad run. But when you are not only a national disgrace but an international disgrace this is going like this is a story that is going all around the world currently um your position isn't tenable like he either has to get fired or has to get demoted from his position because right now the Sydney Morning Herald looks worse than they already it's pretty silly um but yeah overall it's just like yeah morally it's just horrendous to be doing this kind of thing especially this is something you'd expect in like the 80s or the 90s or whatever. It's not something that should be happening now. Um, you know, let Rebel Wilson do her own thing and she'll come out and do all this stuff when she's ready. Maybe she didn't want to at all. Um, and that's perfectly fine as well. Like celebrities don't owe the public anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I mean, that's the only way that you can put it ultimately. So we might... End tonight's episode here. So, Joel, Rory, would you like to share your social media handles? Uh, yeah, at Rory underscore Dennis. Uh, yeah, uh, Joel W. Duggan. Yeah. And you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok at Dodzy161. Uh, this has been Edge of the Election. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Edge Election Pod. You can find any stories we write at www.edgeofthecrowd.com. Uh, you can also follow our social medias at Edge of the Crowd on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, pretty much everywhere at this point. Uh, thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.